0: Well, good morning. My name is uh, Chad Donahoe. I'm the interim pastor at Grace. I miss my cue every time. Children, you are dismissed to Children's Church. I should write that down. Uh, All right. Chad Donahoe, uh, (laughs) interim pastor at Grace. And if you are new to us, we are in a series on the Minor Prophets, the last 12 books of the Old Testament. And this morning, we are going to be in the book of Haggai, the book of Haggai. So, but before I dive in and read Haggai, it'll be good for us to do a little of context uh, with the minor prophets because we are turning a major corner with the minor prophets, especially these last three minor prophets of Haggai, Zechariah, and Zechariah. And Malachi. So I want to do a little bit of Old Testament history with us. So if you are newer to grace, hopefully this will be something, uh, this little bit of history will catch you up with the minor prophets of what we've been talking about. If you are not new to grace, this is not a time to nap. This would be the time to think, oh, how would I explain a little bit of Old Testament history with respect to the minor prophets? So here's my shot at it. Think a thousand BC, a thousand before Christ. King David is on the throne and he's ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel. Things are going well. After King David dies, King Solomon, his son, takes his place. And then after Solomon dies, his son, Rehoboam, takes his place. And that's when the wheels fall off, so to speak. What you have with Rehoboam is... A moment when he listens to the wrong counsel. He's running with the wrong crowd. And the counsel that he gives or that he receives essentially, he turns around and this is what he tells the people, if I can paraphrase Do you know who I am? You thought my father was tough, just wait. Okay, that did not go well. So, what you have of those 12 tribes is 10 of those tribes split off, they head north. So they become the kingdom of Israel in Samaria. Two of the tribes remain in the south. This is the kingdom of Judah, okay? So with this, the kingdom is divided. But here's where what I've been referring to as the ABCs of exile come in. Okay, so from the very beginning, God had promised his people, he had established this covenant with his people, Right, Um, And this covenant is, if we were just to recite really quickly the covenant formula, I will be your God and you will be my people, right? That was the promise. God saying, I'll be faithful to you, calls them to be faithful to him, but lays out these covenant blessings if they're faithful, but also covenant curses if they are not faithful. Both kingdoms, the Israel in the north and Judah in the south are not faithful to the Lord. So God allows them to be conquered by other nations. So the ABCs of of exile. The first one, A, is Assyria. Assyria rises to power. They come, they conquer Israel in the north and essentially scatter them and exile them among other people groups. So Israel's gone. Years later, Babylon comes to power. So Babylon comes in. They conquer Judah in the south, And they exile them, the people of God, to Babylon. Here's what's also really important, especially for Haggai today, that when they conquered Jerusalem, they also demolished the temple, okay? So then we come to see, now the next letter is, actually the next nation is Persia, but ABP doesn't work. So I'm going with Cyrus of Persia, A-B-C. So Cyrus of Persia comes to power, and what Persia does, they're now reigning over God's people. They allow them to go from Babylon to return back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and as well to rebuild the temple. This time period is the same time period as the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. So, even with that, if I can just summarize the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, and I'll do it with some hand motions. So, the book of Ezra is essentially this. Rebuild the temple, see the steeple, right? And rebuild the people, okay? That's Ezra. Nehemiah is rebuild the walls so the people are working, right? Rebuild the walls and rebuild the people. And by rebuilding people meaning spiritually, That's what's on the heart of Ezra and Nehemiah. That's what's on the heart of Hosea. No, not Hosea. Remind me what book we're in. Haggai. I knew I was going to do that. I knew it. All right. So we are in Haggai. And what Haggai is going to do is um, minister to roughly 50,000 of the Jewish people, the remnant that has returned from Babylon, to rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. So, as we come to Haggai, we need to recognize this book, a couple of things. This was written, or what we have in front of us, is about a four-month time period where Haggai is ministering to God's people. And also, this is under the second year of Darius, the king of Persia, so roughly 520 years. BC. And Haggai's focus is on rebuilding of the temple. So with that, let me pray for our time, and we will read Haggai chapter 1. In my prayer this morning, we'll take one of Paul's prayers out of Ephesians 3, and we'll make it our own. So our prayer, Father, we pray that according to the riches of your glory, you may grant us to be strengthened with power through your Spirit in our inner being, that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, and that we, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Lord, that is our prayer. I pray that you would fill us up this morning with your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so Haggai, chapter one, beginning in verse one, we'll read one through fifteen, all of chapter one. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much. And behold, it came to little. Excuse me, I, uh, I'm already losing my voice. That's not good. Let me find where I was. You looked for much, verse 9. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. <clears throat> And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and, and on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord, and Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. (coughs) Excuse me. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord, of the host, their God. On the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. And together, the grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. I'm sorry, I'm going to be wrestling through this tickle in my throat. We're going to wrestle together. All right, so... Why should we care about Haggai's message in the Old Testament for his people to build a temple? And after all, um, does Haggai have any relevance for us today? And for that matter, shouldn't we just ignore the Old Testament and read the New Testament and the Psalms, right? That hurts me just to ask that question. No, no. We cannot neglect the Old Testament. As one theologian put it, the more we understand the Old Testament, the closer we come to the heart of Jesus. That is a true statement. We'll see that with Haggai. And also, yes, Haggai has a message for us this morning. So first, we have to understand why Haggai is calling the people to rebuild the temple. Is it because God is into bricks and mortar? Is it because God just wants a building? That's not it. It's not that God wants bricks and mortar. What God wants is His people's heart, fully devoted to Him. The purpose behind the temple was that God would dwell with His people, and what God desires of His people is a relationship, fully devoted. God's people would be devoted to Him, not distracted. Not compartmentalized, not apathetic, not prioritizing their own um, their own pursuits, but prioritizing God and His pursuits. So why do we need Haggai? It's to remind us to consider our ways. That's a very intentional phrase. Four times in the book of Haggai that phrase is used: "Consider your ways." And what are we to consider? What it means to center our lives on the Lord, on God's priorities and his work, because our hearts also get distracted, get divided. Our hearts become busy and compartmentalized and apathetic at times. So here's a question. What's the chief end of man? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We know the answer. Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number one. To glorify God and enjoy enjoy him forever. We know the answer. But we fail to live it out perfectly in our lives. And so with that, Haggai reminds us that God has this glorious plan for the world and calls us to get caught up in it. So here's the heart of Haggai's message, you know, in, in my words, would be this. And it came up with a little jingle. It's this. Bringing him glory is our top priority. So get back to work. Bringing him glory is our top priority. So we are called to get back work. And so what I want to do with Haggai is I want to flow through or follow the flow of Haggai, which is essentially four sections, one section, chapter one is one section, and then chapter two, there's three sections. All these sections have something in common, begins with a date, and then it says a word of the Lord from Haggai, and that's followed by a question, and that question drives the section. So, and what I want us to keep in mind is... Why is this temple so important to the Lord? So, chapter one, verse one. Uh, name, we have the names, uh, the names of the characters here, right? So we have Darius, who is the king of Persia, and this—the uh, date here is it is in his second year as the king. And then we have Haggai, the prophet who brings a word of the Lord. Haggai uh, directs his message to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. So they're under Persian rule, but Haggai, or uh, sorry, Zerubbabel is that governor who's been appointed under Persian rule. Okay. And Joshua, the high priest who oversees the temple. So verse two. Here's Haggai's message. Thus says the Lord of Hosts. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Okay, do you notice the, notice the language there? These people, not exactly a term of endearment, right? That would be equivalent to, if my wife were to ever look at me and say something like, your sons are, you know, that's, that's a bit of disassociation at that point, right? That is what is happening Um, here. These people. So, and again, we've already talked through the covenant formula. What is it? I will be your God, and you will be my people. But this is God saying these people, because they're not acting in line with the covenant. So, these people are saying the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. And why isn't it time Right. What's their excuse? And we, we know a bit of this, or context is going to be helpful here, again, from the book of Ezra, that of these, uh, so the 50,000 Jewish people returned, a remnant returned, and what we know from Ezra, chapters 3 and 4, is that the be, they began the work in the temple, they built the altar, they laid the foundation, but then the work stopped. It stopped because of opposition, right? The surrounding nations did not want them to build this temple. And why? What stands behind this opposition? Satan. Satan does not want this temple to have any kind of future. And in Ezra, we read in chapter 4, verses 4 through 5, then the people of the land, the surrounding nations, discouraged the people of Judah, made them afraid to build, bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purposes all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia, which again lands us here under Darius's rule. So unfortunately, God's people lose heart And they lose focus on building God's temple, and instead, they just build their own homes, where the Lord refers to them as their paneled, like their luxurious homes. So here's the key question. Look at verses three and four. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Again, why is this rebuilding of the temple so important to God? Let me offer at least three good reasons why this temple is so important to the Lord. The first one is God's people were to center their lives on the temple. This is the place of worship. This is the place of the sacrificial system God's people would understand the only way to have a right relationship with a holy God is if your sins are atoned for, cleansed. That's where the sacrificial system would come in. (coughs) Excuse me. The second reason. The temple was to be the visible manifestation, or you could say demonstration, of God's presence with his people. So the second reason... Uh, was the, uh, the temple was the visible manifestation, the presence of God dwelling with his people. And this, uh, and this was to be put on display. God's relationship with his people was to be put on display for the other nations to be able to see how great <coughs> the Lord was. Okay, I'm going to plan B. I'm taking a uh, cough drop. Okay, so the third reason... The temple pointed to a future glorious Messiah. So God was saying, it's time for you to stop prioritizing your own comfort, your own paneled house, and it's time for you to prioritize my work. Get back to work, essentially is the message here. Then in verses five and seven, we have a repeated uh, repeated phrase. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Remember how I mentioned that shows up four times, consider your ways? Literally, set your heart upon is what that phrase would mean. And what do they consider? They are to consider that their lack of faithfulness has led to consequences. And these consequences are named in verses six and then in verses nine through 11. If I can summarize these consequences, it's this. Your farms aren't producing... There's a drought in the land. You do not have grain wild, wine, uh, grain, wine and oil in supply. and the minute they would hear these words, God's people should understand, oh no, this is covenant curse." Because what they should have be able to recall is Moses. When, when God established a covenant with his people through Moses, God communicated to his people that if they followed God, that they would be blessed, covenant blessings. If they did not follow the Lord, they would receive covenant curses. And this is all in line with covenant curse. So what we have is their curse because verse 9 my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Okay? We're not building a temple, right? How does this apply to us? We can get really busy, can't we? We can get really busy. And are we busy with the right things? Are we busy with God's glory? We also are called to consider our ways. What does it mean for the Lord to be the very center of our lives? Verse eight sums it up. Go up to the hills, bring wood, and build that house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified. And so again, to bring him glory is our top priority And are our lives centered on him? And and earlier I talked about a divided heart or a compartmentalized heart. A compartmentalized heart. What does that look like? One foot in the world, enjoying the things of the world. One foot in church. But God doesn't call us to live a compartmentalized life. Yes, God calls us to live out our faith in the world, but to live our faith out, to live... Faithfully. And the problem in Haggai's day is God's people are compartmentalized in their faith. They are not seeking to glorify God with all areas of their life. So, what's the people's response? Thankfully, it's a good response, verses 12 through 15. In verse 12, they obeyed the voice of the Lord and the people feared the Lord. Fear meaning reverence and devotion. So God's response, in verse 13, he says, I am with you, declares the Lord. And then verse 14 says this, And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, high priest, spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of the host, their God, on the 24th day of the month, on the sixth month, and the second year of Darius the king. Okay, so the Lord has stirred them up, and they got back to work. Takes us to chapter two. This is the second word of the Lord that comes from Haggai. And to use the C.S. Lewis line, chapter takes us further up and further in regarding our understanding of the significance of this temple. So, in chapter two, we have the same pattern. We have a date, okay, and this date is a month and a half later, as far as our time frame goes, and then a word of the Lord through Haggai, and then a question, another question to the people. In verse three, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory how do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Okay, to get the point of this question, again, requires a bit of Old Testament history. Excuse me. (coughs) The glorious, um, we got to think back to the glorious first temple that was built under Solomon. That's the temple that got destroyed roughly 66 years before by Babylon. So, only of this remnant, only the elderly, those aged roughly 70 and older, would have remembered the glory and splendor of this first temple. And they would have recognized, in comparison, this new temple that they're rebuilding is far inferior. In fact, Ezra records uh, in chapter 3 uh, verse 12 that after the foundation of this new temple was laid to replace the old one that the people wept okay now there were some in the crowd that were joyful because it, the temple was being erected but but the pe- most of the people wept especially you can assume the elderly who understood the glory of the first temple So this would have been discouraging to God's people, which may have been part of the reason they stopped the work. Because it was discouraging. It was nowhere close to the first temple. But listen to the message that Haggai reveals to them in verses four through nine. This section is loaded. Like, if you're into baked potatoes, this is like a loaded spiritual baked potato with all the ingredients you need. Here it is, verses four and five. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. Three times, be strong. Get back to work. Why? Because I'm with you. And then according to the covenant I made with you when you came out of Egypt. God brought them out of Egypt. And what was the covenant promise for them? It was this in Exodus 19. You shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation and my spirit remains in your midst, so fear not. To reinforce this idea of fear not, Lord of hosts is the name that is used here. Here's where it gets interesting. Lord of hosts is used six times in verses four through nine alone. But what we find is this name is used often in three of the prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi? Why are they using Lord of hosts? And, or, or we could say it this way, why is God revealing himself to them as the Lord of hosts? Think about their context. They're only 50,000 people. They have no army. They've been in exile. They're back and they're vulnerable to any kind of oppression. And what God is saying to them is, yeah, my people you don't have much, but I've got your back. I have all the angelic firepower you will ever need as the Lord of hosts, so fear not. It's a powerful word for God's people back then, but what we see, verses four through five, are also a powerful word of the Lord to us. If I can paraphrase it from the Lord, it would be this. You are my covenant people, and my covenant with you is that you are my treasured possession, and that is a holy calling. You are called to be holy in all you do. Be strong in the work that I've called you to do in this world, at church, at work, at home, in your neighborhoods, in your city. You are called to be my light and to glorify me in all that you do. You have my spirit. It always remains in you, which means I have given you the very best that I can possibly give you. Because all that is true, fear not. No matter what comes your way, fear not, for I'm the Lord of hosts, always with you, and I always outnumber your opposition. I've got all the firepower you need, and when you fail, turn back to me, get back to work. I am with you. Now, verses six through nine. I want us to consider these I will statements. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Those powerful I will statements. I will shake the heavens and the earth. I will shake all nations. I will fill this house with glory. I will give peace, declares this Lord of hosts. And this is pointing far beyond this temple to a future and more glorious temple. Yes, this temple that they're working on will get rebuilt. And this is the same temple that shows up uh, in the New Testament. Or when we open the pages of the New Testament, it's this temple. With some modifications done under Herod, under Rome, but it's essentially this temple. But what do we read in the New Testament? This glorious, glorious news. John 1, 14. And the word, capital capital word, meaning Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And that word dwell is the word tabernacle. The word took on flesh and tabernacled among us. The visible and glorious presence of God finally came into the second temple. And what did Jesus claim? In chapter two of of John, verse 19, "'Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up.'" Jesus was referring to himself as the true temple of God, the very presence of God with his people. And it was Jesus who fulfilled the role of this temple in himself as he took on the cross as the substitute For our sin. Haggai mentions this shaking of the heavens and the earth and the nations. Think about this. When Jesus died on the cross, what does Matthew tell us? In Matthew 27, that the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly this was the Son of God. Then, at the resurrection of Jesus in Matthew 28, behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone. And that was just a foretaste of a greater shaking that will take place on the day of judgment when Jesus returns in glory to usher in the new heaven's And the new earth. And listen to the language of of the temple in Revelation chapter 21, verses 22 through 25. We have this vision of the new heavens and the new earth. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there'll be no night there. When Haggai spoke of, and in this place I will give peace, it sounds like a place of peace, doesn't it? It's interesting. I remember years ago when I was reading through the Old Testament for one of the first times, and I was reading through all the description of the temple and something caught my attention. It was the the way the temple was talked about what was inscribed in the temple. These palm trees and these flowers. And I realized it was God's way of having a visual representation of the temple, pointing God's people back to a glorious past the perfect Garden of Eden, but then pointing them forward to an even more glorious future of this new heavens and this new earth. And so, what do we do as we wait for this day of the new heavens and new earth? We grasp who we are, and we get back to work. As far as grasping who we are, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 Do you not know that you, plural, the church, are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Now, just pause. Think about what Jesus did. Jesus, when he was on the earth with with his disciples, he was with them, he was among them. After his death, his resurrection, when he ascended to the right hand of the Father, who did Jesus send back? The very spirit of God to dwell in his disciples now. The very presence of God in us. And then, and through that spirit, God is building his temple, his spiritual temple. First Peter chapter two, as you come to him, Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. Again, we are stones in God's new spiritual temple. Let me go on. To be a holy priesthood offers uh, spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people, covenant... Once you would not receive mercy, but now you have received mercy, blessings of covenant. So, what are we to grasp? What's our identity? We're living stones in God's spiritual temple here on earth. And as far as getting back to work, we are called to build the church, to proclaim them with our lips, to back it up with our lives. Show the world that we love the Lord more than we love our paneled homes, so to speak, more than we love our comforts. Am I, are you too distracted, too busy, too compartmentalized, apathetic? Is God's presence in your life your true priority? If we're not captivated by the presence and glory of God, then we will be satisfied or we will look for satisfaction in lesser glories in this world. And again, is bringing God glory your top priority? The Lord promises to shake the nations. One of the applications of the shaking of the nations is that people from the nations will come to faith in Jesus as their Lord and as their Savior. And how does that happen? How do the nations come to faith? You know what it takes? It takes people all over the world, Christians all over the world, and that includes us in Lawrence, Kansas, and sitting in this church, that we go to particular places and particular people, and we go with the gospel, and that is what we proclaim. And that is how God brings the nations to faith in Christ. It is a powerful gospel. And the question is, similar to the way God speared up the spirit of Haggai and others in chapter 1, verse 14, how has God stirred up your spirit? Who stirs you? And what do we do with that? We pray and we get back to work. Continue praying for them. We get back to work of intentionality. So we've got to finish Haggai. I can summarize, and I will. That's my plan to summarize chapter two, verses 10 through nine quickly. There's another date. There is a word of the Lord uh, through Haggai, and then there's a question. I'm just going to summarize this because it's a question to the priest about the law regarding the temple, whether it's clean or unclean. Here's the point. The point that this section makes is um, the presence of a rebuilt temple won't make God's people magically holy just like sitting in a church service doesn't make you magically a Christian, right? And then in this section, two more times, God tells them to consider, consider their ways. And what they are to consider again is why have these covenant curses come upon them? And the reality is they have not really embraced the covenant from the heart and they're not really living in light of it, even though they're beginning to rebuild the temple. But look at this glorious promise in verse 19. But from this day on, I will bless you, declares the Lord to his people. God desires to bless his people. And grace will win the day. But there's something very important for us to understand here as we've talked about covenant curses. Will Christians experience covenant curse? Answer is no, because Christ experienced the covenant curse for us by way of the cross. But having said that, will Christians struggle and suffer and face all sorts of things that are just beyond us at times? And the answer is yes. And this can cause, um, and, and this can cause us to question at times. God, are you there? Have you forsaken us? And really, it comes down to perspective. And I can illustrate it this way. Two perspectives, a story. Um, true story. I mentioned this years ago, but I'll, 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 I'll talk about it. I'll approach it in a little different way. So I'm at a baseball game watching one of my kids. I'm behind a home plate, behind the fence. There's this little group of girls standing behind me, and they're playing. They're in a circle. They're giggling, you know, having a tea party, whatever. They're, they're having a great time. Um, so here's one version of the story that I just randomly decided to run in the middle of their circle and as I did, I brushed one of the girls to the side accidentally, or accidentally, to which she turned and looked at me, she pointed at me, and she told her friends, that man tried to hurt me. That's her version. Here's the other version. I'm standing here watching the game. A foul ball gets hit over the backstop. I look up, I look back, and I notice that the ball is heading right for the group of girls. So I turn, and I run, and I can't help it. I can't avoid their group, so I run in the middle of the group, and I catch the foul ball right as it's about to hit that girl on the head. But she's oblivious, so pick back up the story. Pointing at me, saying, that man tried to hurt me, and all her friends are like, Like, what, little girl? I just saved your life. Maybe not that extreme. But is this not what we do to God at times? God has given us, if we're in Christ, God's given us the Savior. He has saved our life, has nothing but good for us, but will allow trials and struggles and deep struggles to come into our lives. And what is God doing He sees the whole picture, but like the little girl, we're oblivious. We don't see the whole picture. But God's desire is not to crush us, harm us, hurt us. God's desire is to take us further up and further in to his presence, to the depth of a relationship with him, that we would put our hope fully in him. That is God's heart. And with that we have assurance of this amazing hope that no matter what we're facing, God is at work. And we see this as the book of Haggai ends. So our last section, verses 20 through 23, and this will lead us to the communion table this morning. Again, begins with a date, but this date is the same day as our last date. Okay, so The message and the word of the Lord comes to Haggai twice in this day. And this is not a question this time. This is an exclamation point. If I can read verses uh, 21 through 23. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders, and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one of them by sword to his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Sheltiel, declares the Lord, and I'll make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. So again... God's about to shake the nations, the heavens and earth and overthrow nations. And how? He's gonna take Zerubbabel, his servant, and make him like a signet ring. So the question is, what's a signet ring? What's the significance of that? And why Zerubbabel? So a signet ring is a symbol of a power, of power and authority. If I have a signet ring and I give it to you, if I'm the king, I give you my signet ring, you have my power and my authority. And God says he's gonna give this to Zerubbabel, his servant, but here's where it gets interesting. We don't know much of Zerubbabel after this story. He doesn't really appear until we get to Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy of Jesus. And what we find is Zerubbabel was a link in the chain, so to speak, leading to the Messiah. Zerubbabel was God's servant, but he pointed to an even greater servant. Zerubbabel pointed to this suffering servant who had come for his people. And what would this suffering servant do? If I can read this just as we come to the table this morning. Who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So what's the fulfillment of Isaiah 53? And what's the fulfillment of Haggai? It is Jesus, God's presence with us. And we see this and taste this as we come to the table this morning. On the night When Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And after giving thanks, he gave this to his disciples. And he said to them, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup and after giving thanks, gave this to his disciples. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me, the apostle Paul adds, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So let's pray together. Lord, we ask that you meet us at this table in a way that strengthens our faith, that you would grow us further in the knowledge of your glorious grace. And the hope that we have, the hope of a new heavens and a new earth, a hope that will sustain us. So I pray that you take this bread, this juice, set it apart in such a way that we truly know that you are with us. And may you be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.